0: Please turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. There are all kinds of ways that we differentiate between people. Uh, There's obviously male and female, black and white, Asian, Hispanic, big and small, hairy, bald, bald and hairy. (laughs) old, young, all kinds of distinguishing qualities that we think are so important that we use to distinguish ourselves from others or differentiate people amongst one another. But really, all of these are, are relatively trivial. There is one distinguishing quality for every man, woman, and child, and it is this. Do you know Jesus Christ? You can evaluate All of humanity based upon this one distinguishing quality. Do you know Jesus Christ? It's the most important distinguishing characteristic for every man, woman, and child. In fact, 2,000 years ago, Jesus asked a very simple but profound question. Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? This morning, we're going to look at the response to this question from the perspective of two women, both of whom happen to be named Mary, both of whom got it right. Right? They didn't know everything, but what they knew was true. So I want us to begin reading together in Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, The virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement, kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. If you had asked Mary, who is Jesus, obviously she would have said, well, he's my son. But beyond that, she would have said he's the son of God. I don't know if you ever noticed, but our moms seem to know us better than anyone else. Ever made that observation? I remember when I was growing up, that kind of bugged me. You know, because I couldn't hide anything. My mom knew what I was thinking just by looking at my face. So she knew if I was lying or if I was even just kind of bending the truth a little or if I was sad about something and she was relentless at pulling it out of me. You know, that, that just bothered me. It was like, like somebody was just talking to her, telling her, you know. And, and, and I've wondered, as I read this story this week, I thought, you know, maybe that's it. Maybe there's like this vast maternal conspiracy. Men will never actually know about it, but every mom has an angel. Right? Just like Mary had an angel telling her stuff about Jesus, her son. And maybe every mom has that. And we just, as men, we never know about it. I think, I think that's the answer. Right? That's how they know what we're thinking. Right? Jesus was known by his mom. Because she had gazed into his face from the moment that he was born. Because an angel had come to her and had revealed to her that he was not just her son, but he was The son. The Son of God. Now normally when we hear that term Son of God, we think second member of the Trinity. There's Father, there's Son, there's Holy Spirit. But that concept of Trinity really developed later on in the New Testament writings. As Peter and James and John and Paul had the Holy Spirit reveal to them this concept of a Trinitarian God. What's happening here at the beginning of the Gospels when we speak of the Son is we're talking about the anointed ruler, the King. And that's the Old Testament concept of son. I want you to turn back to Psalm chapter 2 and verse 6. Psalm chapter 2 is an enthronement psalm. God the Father is declaring that his son will be king. Son is a title for kingship. Psalm chapter 2 verse 6 This is the father speaking. He says, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And what is the title or the name of that one? Well, he says, I will surely uh, tell of the decree of the Lord. This is now the son speaking. He has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That is, today you have become my son. Today you have taken on the title of son. Today you have become The ruler over my people, Israel, and from that place in Jerusalem, you will rule over all peoples. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. In the Old Testament concept, the son of God was the king. David was called son of God. Solomon was called son of God. And the great hope of all Israel was that one day he would send another son, who would be king and would free them from all of their captives and all their oppression and would bring in all of the covenant promises. That was the hope of the son. That's the concept that's in John's mind. That's the concept that's in the disciples' mind. I want you to turn back now with me to the gospels. Gospel of John, chapter one. John chapter one and verse 49. So let's begin in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and he said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit or guile. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. That is, you're the king. You are the king of Israel. The angel came and revealed to Mary, Mary, this one that will be born of you, he will not just be your son. He will be the son, the son of God, the king of Israel. Another title for the son was the Messiah, okay? God's Messiah, God's anointed one. Look with me in chapter one of John in verse 41. Andrew first found his own brother Simon, and he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. Okay? Remember, Jesus' name is not first name Jesus, last name Christ, right? He didn't introduce himself, him, Mr. Christ, Jesus Christ, right? Church in Rome just got a new pope, Pope Francis. It's not first name Pope, last name Francis. Pope is the title, right? Christ is a title. He is Jesus, the Christ. In Greek, it's Christos. Hebrew, same word, Messiah, which means anointed. Mashiach, anointed one, the one who is set apart to be the son, that is to be the king or the ruler of Israel. And what is the hope? Well, this one who will come will bring in the covenant promises of God. How will he do it? Chapter 1, verse 33. John the Baptist speaking he says I did not recognize him but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him this is the one the one who baptizes in the holy spirit that is the one who sends the very presence of god into our midst so that we can obey so that god can fulfill the promises that he made to abraham isaac and jacob so that god can remove oppression from us and he can bring prosperity back to us he can remove the debt of our sin And cause us to live with him forever. This is the one. This is what Jews were hoping for and longing for. And Andrew comes to Simon Peter and he says, I think we have found him. We have found God's anointed Messiah. That is Christ. The one who is chosen to rule. And John adds for us a little more explanation by giving him the title, the word of God. Look in chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in, this one was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John does not say he is the words of God, but he is the word of God, and he Wants us to turn our attention all the way back to Genesis. He makes an allusion here. In the beginning. That phrase is the first phrase in our Bibles. In the beginning. John picks it up again. In the beginning. What's happening in the beginning? In the beginning, God is. And John says, In the beginning, the Son, the Word of God, also was. He was not the Father, but He was. He is eternally coexistent with the Father, but he is distinct from the Father. He gives us one of our first Trinitarian statements. There is a Father and there is a Son. They're distinct from one another, but they are co-equal. They are co-eternal. And what was that one doing? We're told in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, in Genesis, God was speaking. And as he spoke, things came into being. Out of nothing, something came into being. God spoke, and it was. And it was good. And John tells us, that speech that went out from God, okay? the animating presence of God, the agent through whom He created, was in fact the Son. And because He was Son and He was creating and He made all things, that makes Him heir of all things. He will rule over all. He is the ruler. He's anointed, that is, set apart to be God's Son or to be God's ruler. But He wasn't just set apart to rule. He was also anointed or set apart to die. And we're told in Acts chapter two, verse 23, this man, Jesus, the Christ, was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And you, you Jewish leaders, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men, Romans, and put him to death. Peter tells us it wasn't a mistake. Was Jesus anointed to rule? Were the disciples wrong in following him as the Messiah? No. No. He's the one anointed to rule to bring in all the covenant promises, but he was also anointed to die. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't that Rome overpowered him or the Jewish rulers overpowered him. He was chosen and set apart by God to die. I want you to turn with me to John's gospel, chapter 12. Now, John chapter 12 and verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom he had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep this tradition for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. It's easy to identify with a winner, isn't it? Great athletes, got a posse that follows them all around. Politicians have donors that flock to them. But if the athlete gets injured, posse's gone. If the politician doesn't do well in the polls, it looks like someone else is going to win. The donors shift. Lottery winners get friends and family quickly, coming out of nowhere when all the money is gone. They evaporate. Proverbs talks a lot about that. It's easy to back a winner. But Mary backs a loser. Mary knows that Jesus is going to die. How is it that this young woman has the courage to stand with Jesus, even knowing that he will be rejected? Maybe more importantly, how does Mary even know that he's going to be rejected? How does she know? We're told in Matthew chapter 26, parallel account, John 12, that when she poured this perfume on my body, Jesus speaking, she did it to prepare me for burial. How is it that Mary understood? Well, we say to ourselves, well, you know, because Jesus told his disciples, right? He told them and then he told them again. He told them over and over and over again, right? He just kept telling them. And did they get it? No, none none of these guys got it. But one young woman did. Why is that? Why is she the only one who really understood what all of this was about? There are four um, incidents that are recorded in the Gospels where we see Mary in the presence of Jesus. Okay, and I want us to look at each one of them. And as we're looking at these, I want you to ask yourself the question, where was Mary? Okay, where was Mary in each case? First, we're going to look at Luke chapter 10. Again, Luke chapter 10 and verse 38. Now, as Jesus and his disciples were traveling along, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Now turn to John chapter 11 and verse 30. The death of Lazarus, John chapter 11 Verse 30, says Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Then the Jews who were with Mary in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then John 12 verse 2 they made him a supper there and Mary was serving but Lazarus was one reclining at the table with him Mary then took a pound a very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume then the final one in Matthew chapter 28 Matthew chapter 28 verse 1 now after the sabbath as it began To dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear, and they became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said, Come. See the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them and they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. Where was Mary? Where was Mary? Every time, every time, there's Mary at the feet of Jesus. Every time Mary is at the feet of Jesus. And I think the lesson that we learn fundamentally from each of these Marys is that what is most important is to have undistracted attention to Jesus Christ. I think Mary got it because, and the other disciples didn't get it because Mary was paying attention and they were not. They were consumed with their own greatness in the kingdom. They were thinking of themselves. Jesus is talking and they're filtering everything he says through how it affects them, what it is about them. Mary is just sitting in his feet and she is devoted. She is undistracted. She is just listening to Jesus. And so Mary got it when the others didn't. And the lesson for us to learn is that undistracted devotion or worship is the most important thing that we can be about. See, Mary understands that the sacrifice that Jesus is about to make for her is worthy of paying attention to him. So there are four characteristics of her worship that I want us to observe this morning. First is this. Worship of Jesus is life. Worship of Jesus is life itself. I want you to turn back with me to Luke, chapter 10, and verse 38. Undoubtedly, Mary had a lot of other interactions with Jesus, but for some reason, the gospel writers decided to record these. And I think the point is that they're emphasizing this was the habit of Mary's life. When she was with Jesus, this is where she wanted to be, sitting at his feet. Nothing was more important to her. Verse 38 again. As they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up and said to him, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Obviously you do, you do, then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. We're told Mary was distracted, in my translation it says, with all of her preparations. Literally, it's all of her service. It's the word diakonia, from which we get deacon. It's serving. Is it bad to serve the Lord? Was it, was it sin for Martha to be preparing a meal to serve to Jesus? No, Jesus needed to eat, didn't he? The disciples needed to eat. Service is not a bad thing. In fact, we're commanded to serve, aren't we? You've been given spiritual gifts. Use them, employ them in serving one another for the glory of God. What was the point? The point was that there was something that was far more important at this moment in time and that was paying attention to Jesus, listening to his words. We're told by Jesus that Mary has chosen the good part or the good portion. That word could be used of a portion of a meal. In other words, Mary has chosen the food that is better than what you are serving, Martha. Martha. The bread that has come down from heaven that feeds your soul. That's what's most critical. That is what's most important. I don't know if you, any of you married folks, have you ever read the Five Languages of Love? Ever read that? Book? Okay. If you haven't, go buy it. It's a, it's a really good book. Um, Tristan and I read it several years into marriage and we learned some new things that we've never seen in one another. The book's basically talking about the way that we give and receive love the different love languages. How do, we, how do we normally give it and how do we want to receive it? And a lot of times what happens in marriage is a spouse gives it in a way that the other person doesn't understand or doesn't receive it or we want to get it in a way that that person doesn't know how or doesn't connect and so we miss each other. I, I learned early on that Tristy's primary love language was words of affirmation. She, she wants words from me that affirm and encourage. I also learned Later on, when we had kids, that her love language shifted. The primary one that kind of rose to the top was acts of service, right? And I I have permission to tell this story. It's one of my favorite stories about my wife. But I remember one day I came home from work and I'd had a great day at work and I said, Hey, how was your day? What'd you do? She kind of stared at me for a second. She said, I wiped. I wiped today. I wiped counters. I wiped floors. I wiped noses. I wiped butts. I wiped. And um, this is just bonus, right? Here's a little. I'm just give a little marriage tip right right now, okay? So, husbands, you know, she turned around and asked me how my day was. And, and here's the deal: when your wife has had a bad day and she asks you how your day was you're going to lose. You, you cannot win from that, from that point in time, right? There's no, there's, no, there's no answer. There's no good answer. So if you say, man, I had a great day, then she's, she's thinking, okay, I'm slaving here at home and I'm having a horrible day so you can just have fun at work with your buddies. I mean, that's, you know, You're just hanging out, drinking coffee and enjoying yourself all day long. You just had fun while I'm slaving and working, okay? So you can't say you had a good day. If you say, at a bad day, she goes, I was slaving away working hard at the home all, so that you could have a fun day at work, right? So, I mean, either way, it's jacked up. You're not going to win. You will lose. So, just pick up a rag and start wiping. Just, I mean, just, you know, just join in, join in and just act like, just change the subject because you can't win. You're going to lose on that day, right? So, this, is, this is, was her love language. Shift it shifted around from words of affirmation to acts of service. And I want you to think for a moment. What do you suppose is Jesus' love language? Does it include acts of service? Well, of course. Of course. But what's his primary love language? I think somebody said paying attention. Undistracted devotion. It's not wrong to serve. But what is the thing that is most necessary, Jesus says? What is the thing that is primary? What is the thing around which all of life revolves? It is undistracted attention. Pay attention and listen to Jesus. One of my favorite hymns is, Come Thou Almighty King. First verse goes like this. To the great one in three, eternal praises be, hence today and forevermore. His sovereign majesty may we in glory see and to eternity love and adore. In other words, our occupation for all of eternity will be worship. It will be paying attention to Jesus. And so now we practice. Now we make it our preoccupation that we pay attention first and foremost before we do anything else. All other activities are surrounding this fundamental core truth in our lives that to pay attention to Jesus is the most important thing that we do. That's the first principle we learn from Mary's worship. Second, worship of Jesus requires courage. There's a lot that we are at risk of missing in this setting. But Mary pays an enormously high price socially for her worship of Jesus. You see, to, to sit at someone's feet, to sit, a rabbi, to sit at a rabbi's feet means that you become a disciple of that rabbi. Okay, that's just a technical language to, to mean you're a disciple of that rabbi. But women were not disciples of rabbis. In that day and age, there, there were no female disciples. There were no female learners. They didn't follow the rabbis around and sit at their feet and learn from them. It just didn't happen. Any of you guys ever seen uh, Yentl? Okay, if you're older, you're like 40 and up. Maybe you've seen Yentl. If you've never seen it before, don't. Um, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, Barbara Streisand plays a, a young woman whose father is a rabbi. He's an aging rabbi, and he teaches the young men in town, but on the side secretly when the doors are closed and lights are down, he teaches his daughter. He teaches her Hebrew scriptures, and he teaches her the Talmud. It's, it's off limits. You just don't do it, but she loves to learn, and she loves the word of God. And when he dies... She's still hungry, and so she dresses up as a young man and enters into a yeshiva so that she can learn. This is late 1800s in Poland. Women were not students. Women were not disciples. Late 1800s, 1900s. Even today, there are conservative Jewish schools in which women are not disciples. Certainly in this day, this was was completely out of bounds. And where do we find Mary? She is a disciple of Jesus. She's sitting at his feet. Right before he goes to the cross, she comes into a room and she lets down her hair. Women don't let down their hair in public. Women don't let down their hair in public. Women don't touch a man's feet. A single woman doesn't touch a single man's feet. A single woman certainly wouldn't touch a rabbi's feet. Everything that she's doing is completely out of bounds. And she is ridiculed for it. The disciples ridicule her and they mock her. But she doesn't care. And increasingly in the culture that we live in, we will pay a price to put Jesus at the center of our lives. We will be ridiculed or discarded, dismissed. Are you willing to pay that price? Mary says to herself, I don't care what anyone else thinks. I have to be at the feet of Jesus. Read with me again this passage. Chapter 12. Of John. Verse 2. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. See, not only did Mary pay a social price, she paid a financial price. We're told that she brings in pure nard. Nard was an oil extracted from a plant in India. This is an import. Extremely valuable. It was an investment commodity. Normally, people would purchase something around an ounce. This glass jar from the first century is maybe three inches tall. Extremely valuable. And people would take it and an honored guest would receive a drop or two. Maybe. Maybe. Mary comes into this setting and I want you to imagine for a minute it's possible that what she does is not entirely premeditated. It's possible that she comes in and she has uh, a Roman pound 12 12 ounces worth 300 denarii which is about 10 to 11 months savings if you saved everything you made and you spent nothing in that day. This is her, her life's Saving. She comes in with this, and it's possible that Mary was coming in just to put a drop or two on Jesus' head. But when she comes in, she notices his feet have not been washed. Remember, John 13 follows No one washed the rabbi's feet. That was a disgrace. They should have given him water to wash his hands. Someone should have got down on their hands and knees and washed his feet. The disciples didn't do it, the owner of the house didn't do it. They had brought shame on themselves. And they had disgraced the rabbi. They had not honored him. She comes in and she sees the one that she loves more than life itself who is in disgrace. And she wants to honor him and so she takes that entire jar and she breaks the neck of it Meaning she's holding nothing back and she pours some on his head and then she moves to his feet and she hasn't brought in a towel with her. So she lets down her hair and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair and she's touching him. And everyone else says to themselves, this is a disgrace and this is an absolute waste. And Jesus says, no, it's worship. It's not waste, it's worship. They completely missed the point. As she sacrifices and she gives all to Jesus and pours that, I want you just to get in the moment for a minute and imagine she walks into a room with 12 self important men who are only thinking of themselves and being great. And she's a woman and she's not supposed to be there. And then she comes in and actually touches the rabbi and lets down her hair and pours an entire pound of perfume on his body. Wow. Now, I like perfume. I'm not, I'm not against perfume, but I, I like, like small amounts of perfume, right? Have you ever been in a room where a bottle was broken? This is sensory overload for everyone who's in the room. What they see, the affront to their culture, a woman with her hair down, she's so loose, glass breaking, perfume filling the room. It is unavoidable that she is doing something extravagant and they say it is foolish and a waste and Jesus says, no, that's worship. That's worship. And he rewards her. Fourth principle. Worship of Jesus secures reward because it's the most important thing that we can do. What would have been socially appropriate would have been for Jesus to kick her. And to tell someone to put her out. But every time she comes and sits at his feet, he welcomes her. And he lets her stay. She comes and she sits at his feet and she touches him. And he defends her. It's not a waste, it's worship. He doesn't cast her out, he praises her. He says, what this woman has just done for me will be spoken of. In generation after generation after generation after generation, and will become a model of how you should worship me, knowing that I am the one anointed to rule, but also the one who is about to die on your behalf. What I am giving to you is worthy of any sacrifice, any worship that you might possibly give to me. It is not waste, it is worship. And so, how do we apply this? Simple. Let's worship Jesus. Hey, we are entering into this period where we are moving toward Easter. It's a period of time where in our normal lives we are distracted and worried by so many things, are we? Just like Mary, we're just so, so busy and so distracted. And I want us to take these next two weeks and focus on Jesus. I want you to read the gospel accounts building up to Easter. I want you to think about things that might be distractions that you can remove and really, that's, that's the, the history behind the practice of Lent, of refraining from certain behaviors. It's not to refrain from th- these things to show that we're more godly. It's refrain from these things to remove distractions from our lives so the next two weeks we focus our attention on Jesus. I want us to take a few moments and pray. And as we are silently praying, let's just ask God to remove distractions from us for the next two weeks and help us fix our attention on Jesus. Okay, so let's take a few moments silently in prayer. And then Tim is going to come and lead us in worship. Let's pray. Perhaps this morning Jesus is calling you to come sit at his feet for the first time. Maybe you have never humbled yourself before him. And acknowledge that Jesus is the only one through his death that can remove the debt of your sin. Jesus is calling you this morning we encourage you to listen to give him undistracted attention devotion to listen to his offer to believe that he has died for you you can leave here this morning with your debt removed forever possessing life that is forever for those of you who have already come to the feet of Jesus maybe it is that you've wandered away and you're worried and distracted by many things maybe they're good things Maybe they're evil things. And perhaps Jesus is calling you to come, again, sit at his feet. Give him your attention and your time. Father, I thank you for giving us Jesus. I thank you that we can sit at his feet. We can gaze into his face. We can listen to him. I pray that you would guard us and protect us from the enemy's attacks and all of the distractions, even the good things, certainly the evil things. I pray that for the next two weeks you would refocus our attention On Jesus, the wonder of him, the beauty of him, his sacrifice for us. We would give him the best gift that we can give him, our attention, our time, our worship. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for giving us life. It's in your name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week sitting at Jesus' feet.